Welcome to the Insider's Guide to Finance, where we dive into stories from the front lines of financing public and private companies. I host seasoned CEOs, fund managers, bankers, brokers, and business experts who will answer your questions about how to properly engage investors, finance opportunities, and build outstanding success stories. We dig into the educational how-tos and mechanics of structuring good deals. You'll also hear about strokes of luck, tense negotiations, and the pressures of closing, while also getting insights on how to best navigate the public markets. Welcome back to the Insider's Guide to Finance. Today, we're talking about how crypto and blockchain technologies have gone from being the Wild West into creating and converting bona fide securities, aka digital assets, for companies and investors alike. When you separate the hype around blockchain, you start to find that there's a very valuable world of applications for this technology, some of it more niche than others. You're going to hear from Carlos Domingo, co-founder and CEO of Securitize. He and his team have been applying the power of blockchain technology to managing private and public securities. They were able to take investors through the entire servicing of assets, from buying or subscribing to shares, to know your client requirements, cross-border regulations, and clear transfer of ownership. All of these can be handled by their platform. Carlos has taken on an industry and is managing through the complexity of regulatory bodies who are really stuck in their ways. He also speaks to his previous experience as a corporate venture capitalist and how he's applying that to raising capital for his company now. I think his leadership in navigating this is great to hear for those who are facing similar battles in antiquated industries. Second, it has the ingredients to become a remarkable success in an industry that's ripe for disruption. So I really enjoyed this conversation and I think you will as well. Enjoy the show. Carlos, welcome to the show. Hi, Corey. Thanks for the invite. I'm looking forward to our conversation because I think that you've got a really interesting background from the work you've done in Telefonica and the leadership there, Spice VC as a venture capitalist and now Securitize. And, and the combination of your experience there is really applicable to our listener audience. So what do you say I hand it over to you and we can get into a bit of the background on your career and then what brought you to the work you're doing with Securitize? That's good. So my career is kind of been mixed between working at startups and then working at corporate, large corporates and and also been involved in always in, in venture capital and, in, and investing uh, for many, many years. So I started, I'm originally from Spain, but I studied in Japan at the Tokyo Institute of Technology, which is like the MIT there. And then my career started in Japan during the dot-com times there. I joined a company that went public in what was Nasdaq Japan. And then I moved to the US with that company for the first time over 20 years ago now. So, you know, went through the crazy times of the dot-com and the downturn of the dot-com had to, you know, went from buying companies to basically restructuring and selling properties and consolidating teams, which was, you know, a good experience, but not as fun as the other part. And then in 2006, I joined a telecommunications company, even though I didn't have any background on telecommunications at that time. Uh, it's the, the company you mentioned, Telefonica, which is the, you know, largest telecommunication company in Spain and one of the largest ones in, uh, in Europe and Latin America. And my role there was basically not the telco side of things, but basically, you know, trying to figure out services beyond connectivity. And that's what I did for many years. I ran their corporate R&D and eventually became the head of global R&D for the company, managing also 
a lot of things related to, to telco as I learned that business over time. After I worked for another telco in the Middle East, uh, it's called Louis, the largest IT company in Dubai, setting up the digital operations. And that at that time is when I kind of stumbled upon uh, blockchain through another project that I was running. So we were looking for ways to basically have different government entities to communicate with each other. And I think we'll get to what blockchain is in a minute, but basically it's a good platform for you know, cross-collaboration where people need to share data in a secure way across multiple different entities. So that, you know, kind of struck my interest. And because I had a background of startups and a background on telecommunications, which is a very regulated in industry, I figured out fintech and blockchain is probably where I can apply my skills. There was a lot of innovation happening in the fintech space in general and blockchain in particular. And then, you know, together with some friends, when the whole ICO craziness was starting, we we had the idea of doing an ICO for a venture capital firm, just Spice VC that I co-founded. And then we realized that, you know, when you sell, you know, securities on a fund, you're selling securities basically. And this, you know, kind of be sold the way tokens were being sold in ICOs completely unregulated to retail customers without any sort of controls about, you know, KYC, AML accreditation or how those, you know, assets could transfer in the secondary market once you sold them. So I just, I just want to reflect on what a wild time that was. I remember looking at these just, you know, incredible advertisements of people just saying, buy this new ICO. And you're like, how are you not going to jail? I mean, that was a really wild and short period of time in our history. It was actually pretty crazy. And, and people were raising, you know, insane amount of money from retail investors. Crypto was going up at that time. And therefore, people have a lot of money that they basically just earned by having crypto early on. And they were reinvesting that on ICOs, which would then you know, went up in value. So people, they were then reinvesting in other ICOs. So it was a lot of like money being washed around from one place to another one. I think it, in retrospect, it was not a good thing because a lot of companies that didn't deserve to have that much money raised a lot of money and mm-hmm. they not deliver anything. They're still in business basically because they have so much money mm. that they're not going to go out of business. While on a traditional, if you want funding structure, you will not get that much money up front, but you will get money in the stages as you make progress with the company, you can raise more money. And if you don't make progress, you stop raising money and basically have to close the company. So, but yeah, it was a very crazy time. People didn't go to jail, I guess, basically because, you know, securities laws, you know, are not penal, but are, are civil. So, so you get a fine, but you don't go to jail. That's mm-hmm. how it works, at least in the US. But yeah, people, a lot of people got in trouble anyway, as you guys probably know. And unfortunately, this is already passed and people are not doing that. But I think a lot of good things also stay like, the, you know, the crypto industry was born out of that. A lot of the interesting projects that we see now on DeFi and Ethereum and including our part of the industry, which is the security token industry, was kind of like a, an aftermath of what happened there when people realized that, you know, representing value on the blockchain is, is an interesting value proposition, but you have to do it in a regulated way. And this is how the whole idea of security tokens came up. And so, as I understand, that brings us to securitize and and something that I want to dive into because I think that's really interesting and applicable to so many spaces, at least that I'm involved with, and I'm sure that you're involved, it goes, it's vast. But it all comes down to, or not all, but I mean, a big component of that is blockchain technology and security tokens. So, before we go into that conversation, can you give us a simplified explanation of blockchain and security tokens for all of us to just kind of have a foundation to work from? Yes. So the simplest way to think about blockchain is as a ledger that is distributed that everybody sees and everybody uses the data. And that is cryptographically secure. In other words, like, you know, there is a 
you can't tamper with the data that one has been inserted. The whole history stays there for everybody to see it. And people can just collaborate knowing that there's a single source of truth that everybody's working against. So it's basically a distributed collaboration tool that you know works particularly well in circumstances when people need to exchange you know things and need to make sure that you know if I tell you that I send you something, I actually send it to you and you can verify it has been sent and it has verified that I actually you know don't own that asset anymore. So it's a very good way to represent ownership in a distributed ledger that everyone everybody can verify. So that's what blockchain is in a nutshell. And then the security tokens that come out of them, how does that relate into blockchain? So securities are basically financial instruments that people purchase to, you know, speculate in the good sense of the word of speculate because they think they're going to appreciate in value over time, right? So with securities, you have to prove that you own it, that you've sold it. You have to control how many you're selling. And in some cases, if they're private securities, like let's say equity on startup, they have a lot of regulatory restrictions around how you can move them around and sell them. And blockchain as a platform lends itself very well for doing you know, ownership representation. So the concept of a token is basically that it tells you you own a unit of something. And then if you look at blockchains like Ethereum that have smart contracts, which are basically programmable rules around how these tokens behave and move, it allows to codify all the compliance and all the behavior of the security itself in the asset. So it's like a native digital asset representation of a security as opposed to you know, how people have been dealing with securities in the past, which obviously started with paper-based and eventually moved to what is called in the industry, you know, book entry securities, which is basically an entry on a database. But that entry on a database doesn't say anything and anyone can go there and change it or it doesn't actually tell you how that security behaves. It doesn't allow you to move it around, etc. So security tokens is kind of like an evolution of this simple, you know, way to represent securities on a database. Perfect. Thanks for that. So with that, let's get into the work you're doing now within the world of, well, with Securitize and in the world of, man, I don't even know where to start on how to put together what you're doing there, but I think it's very applicable. So I'm going to hand it over to you and let's get into that conversation. Right. So what we do is basically, you know, we've developed a platform that sits on top of a blockchain that allows people that want to issue private securities to basically use our platform first, completely outside of the blockchain initially to do everything that you need to do to deal with you know, private placements. So KYC, AML, accreditation, investor onboarding, qualification, et cetera. And when that is done in an end-to-end digital manner, then we actually can issue the securities and record the ownership of that security on the blockchain alongside what are the properties of the security that you purchase. Like in other words, if the security pays a dividend or if the security you want to sell it, you know, what are the restrictions in terms of selling it? If you want to purchase another one, how are you going to do it? And all those rules on how private securities work are kind of codified within the security itself. And that allows for, you know, a lot of things like it, it simplifies asset servicing. Suppose today, most people don't know, but if you buy shares of Apple and Robinhood and then Apple pays a dividend, it takes around 15 days for your dividend to actually land into your Robinhood account. And you will think of, you know, why is does it take 15 days? Well, basically, Apple doesn't know who holds Apple shares because there is no single ledger that contains the list of all the Apple shareholders. They have to basically go around to all the different broker dealers that are trading Apple shares and determine who actually holds the securities at one particular point in time and whether that person is entitled to the dividend and then send the dividend to the broker dealer, which then will send it to the sometimes custodians and sometimes directly to the investor, depending, and then eventually gets paid, right? So Yeah, it's madness to think that it still happens it's this way. Madness and, and <laughs> I mean, it does work well, but 
it works inefficiently in the sense that first, you know, if you think about the billions and billions of dollars of dividends being paid out every year in a country like the US, that money is not in the hands of investors for like 15 days. <laughs> yes. I, which means it's money you're not reinvesting and you're not benefiting from. So that turns into a lot of billions of losses. And then it also, to make it work, it requires a lot of intermediaries. And those intermediaries obviously charge fees for doing that and make the process more expensive and inefficient. And that's just one simple example. There's the same thing happens with voting rights, the same thing happens with you know, trading and things like that. So the way we think about it is, you know, other industries have been digitized before. If you think about, I think music industry is probably the best one that everybody's familiar with because everybody consumes music. <laughs> when at the beginning music got digitized, you went from LPs and the vinilo LPs, the big black ones that, you know, some people like old enough like myself might remember. And then in the 80s, you got the CD, right? The compact disc. And the CD was a digital version of an LP that still had kind of like the same form factor. It was round, it was physical. You still contain, you know, 12 to 15 songs. You still have to go to, you know, Virgin Megastore or Tower Records or whatever to purchase it physically, etc. But because it was digitized, then it opened up the opportunity that the native digital representation of the music, which was an MP3 file, could actually be moved around and could be placed on a hard disk or a mini hard disk like the iPod was. And then suddenly you you know, you can have thousands of songs in your pocket, which was the advertising that Apple used to do back in those days. And then people realized, well, if this is digital and we have internet, why don't you just, you know, purchase the songs over the internet? And then you realize, well, if I purchase the songs over the internet, I don't need to buy 15 songs, right? Maybe just buy the one I like and pay a dollar for it. And then selling individual, you know, tracks became a thing, which, you know, sounds like a silly thing, but it was very revolutionary back in the days. And the next thing people realized, well, actually, I don't actually need to own the music, right? I can just pay a subscription fee and stream the music and listen it in real time, which is now what Spotify or other people do. And now you have all these things like, you know, automated playlists and recommendations and all this massive innovation that has been around the music industry that has completely transformed, you know, the, the industry, right? So if you think about security, so the way we think it is the same way. Like we were kind of like at the first stage where we're creating compact disks of the analog version of security. So it doesn't sound that exciting yet, but because those compact disks contain native digital representations of the security alongside all their properties, it's going to open up to a lot of new applications and efficiencies and business models that, you know, I don't even know myself what it's going to be, but I'm pretty sure it will come like in any other industry has been digitized. And so I'm curious to know, because you, you have a really fascinating professional background prior to stepping in there was how did your past experience in tech really inform this realization that blockchain was going to be instrumental in the world of digitizing securities? And, you know, was there an aha moment or how has this evolved for you? I don't know if my background is, is interesting or it's just long. <laughs> it's long. I guess I've seen a lot of things before and I've been in many different companies, both large and small, the startups and corporates. I guess, you know, that helps when you are facing a new problem in terms of how you're trying to solve it, how you do everything that is required to manage a company from, you know, hiring people, building teams, you know, presenting in public, talking to investors and doing many other things. So I think that you know, having been around for long enough and having a variety of experiences in different industries helps that. And then I guess the, if I say what was kind of like the, the aha moment is when I was working at telecommunications at the beginning, you know, the way people messaged to each other was with SMS, right? That was kind of like the standard messaging app that everybody used, right? And then something called WhatsApp came up. The telecommunication industry at the beginning kind of like discarded it. And they were like, nobody's going to use this, right? Because it's less efficient than SMS because 
SMS is built in in every phone. It's a standard. When you send an SMS, you know for sure that the receiving end is going to have an SMS in their phone, an SMS app in their phone, and you're going to be able to receive it. And WhatsApp, you know, you have to download an app, and you know, in the app, you have to find the other people, and only works with the people that have the app installed. And you know, the telcos didn't actually understand how revolutionary it was to move from something hardware-based because SMS is basically built into the network, the telecommunication networks, and and it's very difficult to evolve and to modify to something which is purely native software that WhatsApp could actually modify very quickly. And the fact that you had to download an app, you know, it became a non-issue fairly quickly. So when I started learning about this industry and blockchain and then the private securities industry, which I don't have a background of financial services, or I didn't have before, I guess I have a little bit now after two years doing this, but I kind of sounded like that to me. So this is kind of like the WhatsApp of the securities, if you want, where people don't realize how disruptive it could be and how many new applications and ways of people to do things is going to open up because it's a native digital form and therefore it will be easier to modify it and evolve it and add features and functionality as opposed to something which is more analog like SMS or like you know paper-based securities. There's an interesting parallel there. And WhatsApp, I could see why it would be discarded by the telecommunications industry, but they were able to overcome those hurdles. What hurdles are you facing and and how do you think that are there parallels in which WhatsApp was able to overcome them that you see your strategies you're taking on to get past that? Because it, I feel that there's a big adoption curve that is going to have to be overcome here. Yes. So I recently sent a letter to investors and I use a sentence that I've used many times from a, a book, The Road Ahead, that Bill Gates wrote in the 90s, that says people tend to overestimate what's going to happen in the next two to three years, but underestimate the change that's going to happen on the next 10 years. So I think that the token industry, we've actually suffered this problem. When I started in 2017 and 2018, it was kind of crazy. Like everybody was like, oh, let's tokenize the world. Everything is going to be tokenized. All securities will be tokenized. And there was a lot of hype around. And then people, ourselves included at the beginning, didn't realize about the financial services industries and capital markets. It's a highly, highly regulated industry that, you know, the laws the way people behave, go back all the way to like the 20s and the 30s. And this is something that's been around for a very, very long time and that you cannot just change with technology. It requires to go beyond technology and to be adopted by and accepted by regulators. And it also requires that you actually hold licenses. So I think that, you know, we, people like me and that have been in technology all their careers tend to think that every new technology gets adopted faster than the one before. And I think this one crypto blockchain, you know, security tokens as a broader industry is taking longer to be adopted because we didn't realize that you're, you know, dealing with money and you're dealing with financial services. And those are highly regulated industries that, you know, are going to be more difficult to transform because, you know, the incumbents have a much stronger foothold because they hold all the licenses and because they are used to deal with the regulators and the laws are designed to the way they behave, right? I'll just give you one simple example. We became a transfer agent in the US. We registered with the SEC, which is the US regulator. In 2019, we were the first company in the blockchain industry that achieved that milestone. A transfer agent is basically the, the regulated entity that can deal with securities. So at the beginning, we were just building technology. And then at some point we realized, well, you know, we actually need a license to be able to deal with securities. It's not about building technology, but you know, we if I want to issue and pay a dividend on behalf of an issuer, to their shareholders, I need to have that license, right? So we went and, and, and took the license and as part of the process of being approved for the license, you have to fingerprint the people, the employees that touch the securities. And I was like, 
we don't touch securities, right? Because we only deal with digital securities. <laughs> so there's mm. no, no paper-based, but, you know, you have two options, right? You can go to the regulator and say, guys, you know, you're outdated. You, you don't touch securities, get rid of this re restriction. We're not going to fingerprint anybody because there's no physical paper certificates for the securities we deal with. Or you can go ahead and, you know, fingerprint the employees, which is what we did, myself included, and then move on and get the license and then prove the regulator that what we're doing is actually more modern and hope that eventually they're going to get rid of this requirement, which is completely obsolete. So right. One of the learnings has been, and, you know, back in the days, I remember going back to the WhatsApp parallelism that the telcos were fighting, you know, Skype first and then WhatsApp by telling them, oh, you guys need to follow regulations, right? Because there's some things like lawful interception. I don't know if you've ever heard this term, but basically if you're a telecommunications company, you have to have a way for the, you know, the governments to tap into the communications in case, you know, there is a national emergency or a crime or, or something big happening. And obviously all those companies that were operating outside the telecommunication industry, but providing communication services, they actually, you know, didn't provide those services. So the telecom mm. side with regulation and you know people find workarounds to that and eventually the regulator you know ignore that and those companies could operate right so, so it's kind of a similar situation with the difference that i don't think we can ignore the regulators in our industry we have to play along with them yes we're trying yeah. to do so and get all the necessary licenses and then go back to the regulator and tell them by the way you know that we can actually do this in this more efficient way and we might actually not need this particular you know, regulation because it doesn't apply anymore to the way we're dealing with technology today. Wow. Interesting. Okay. So uh, something else that's happened, I mean, this has been in the building of the company and maybe we can also weave in some discussion around your financing approach, because I think it's always important to understand how to finance a company along with its growth. But let's just touch on right now, a recent acquisition you did of distributed technology markets, as I understand, DTM. And how does this fit into your larger strategy and where will this take you next? So as I was mentioning at the beginning, one of the beauties of this technology is that you can codify the compliance rules of the security within the security itself, right? So suppose, you know, we do a private placement and then you purchase some shares and you're a US investor and I purchase some shares and I'm, you know, considered a Spanish investor. And then, you know, there's one particular regulation in the US called Flowback that says, you know, the Spanish one cannot sell back to the US one. You can sell mm. it to the non-US one or the US can sell them to the non-US, but not the other one. This is a regulation that exists because the offerings are considered different. The, the offering for US versus for non-US. Okay. So, you know, the way it works in, in traditional markets is a lawyer will have to come and then you will have to pass KYC and they'll have to analyze, you know, what is your jurisdiction. They have to look at the security, how the offering was done and eventually determine, oh, yes, you know, Corey can sell the security to Carlos, Carlos to Corey. And then, you know, the transaction will eventually happen. You know, I will have to send cash somewhere. Someone will have to hold the cash before they give it to you because then you have to transfer the ownership of the security to me, which means somebody else typically transferred and will get involved updating the cap table to make sure the security ownership has changed and then you will receive the cash, right? This is how it works. And this is obviously a manual process that takes, you know, in some cases weeks and involves, you know, law firms, broker dealers, transfer agents, etc. Now, the beauty of the security tokens is that I have the token in my wallet, like if I have Bitcoin but or Ethereum or whatever, or crypto, but this token actually represents security. And this token contains the rules saying Carlos cannot sell to Corey. So BAT can sell to Arabi, for instance. Then if I want to sell it to you, it's as simple as just send you the token and the blockchain protocol will determine whether the sale is legal or not. 
And if it's not legal, it will actually block me from doing the transaction. If it's right. legal, it will actually transfer my token from my wallet to your wallet. If you need to pay me for the sale and you have another token that is, let's say, a stable coin that represents cash, and I sold you to you for $10, blockchain has a property called atomic swap that guarantees that two assets swap in an atomic way. In other words, either both change or don't change hands. Oh, right. Yep. This is the biggest problem when you're doing transactions, right? Because you have to guarantee that the transaction happens somehow simultaneously and that no one person has given the goods to one person, but the other one has not returned whatever you're purchasing, right? So this is like if you and I move up one dollar and I give you a physical dollar, you know, you can take it out of my hand and it's in your hand and that's it, the transaction has happened. But if I send you money through a bank account, the two banks have to coordinate somehow to make sure the money leaves my account and reaches your account and it's not double counted in the two accounts, right? And this is why banking transfer, it's inefficient, especially across borders. So security tokens fixes this problem. It allows for an extremely efficient way of transacting private securities with all the compliance rules built in and what is without any counterparty risk because the transaction happens in an atomic way, right? So that means that you can potentially create a very efficient way of transacting private securities. Well, this touches on the secondary markets and how you'd be able to trade these securities, but making sure everyone's fitting those KYC rules and so on. Correct. KYC, compliance rules, and in an automated way, right? You want to have a digital experience. You want to have kind of something like what Robinhood does, which is you go there, you click and you say, I want to purchase, you know, Apple shares and you click there and then, you know, the shares show up in your account, right? This doesn't exist for private securities because of the complexity and the, let's say, poor digitization around private securities. So security tokens solve that problem. Now, as we discussed before, this is not about only technology. Yes, you can have this beautiful technology that solves this problem, but to be able to actually execute a transaction in the US and in most countries, you actually need a license that allows you to do that. Mm. This license is called an alternative trading system in the US. It's called differently in other countries, but they're basically the same. And then these licenses are very scarce. There's very few companies in the US that have an ATS license. You have to be a broker dealer first number one, and which there's thousands of them in the US, but out of those thousands of broker dealers, you actually, the ones that have an ATS license, there's only like 52 in the US, 52, imagine. For wow. That is in the trillions of dollars. And this is why there's the secondary market for private security is so small. It's around 100 billion annualized volume trading as opposed to, you know, 30 trillions for public markets. Mm. So what we realize is that, you know, we build the technology, but we if we don't have a license, we are relying on a third party that has that license that is going to basically build this marketplace for trading private securities. At the beginning, we did collaborate with some of the entities that were pursuing those business and that had licenses, but we were a bit frustrated, if you want, with the progress and with the way they've built the technology. And so, so at some point in time, we went back to the board and told them, look, you know, we think that for us to grow as a business, we need to have this license to be able to create an efficient marketplace for private securities that doesn't exist today. And it's a big opportunity. It's a massive opportunity. So we went around and, you know, there's only 52 companies, as I mentioned to you, that have the license. And this is public information. You can go to the website of the SEC and just download a file that they update every month where you can see who has the license. So we did that, went to the SEC website, download the file. I looked through the 252 companies one by one and then kind of identify who were potential acquisition targets. Now, to make things even more complicated, if you actually have an ATS that operates on the blockchain with digital asset securities, like we do, out of these 52, there's only like a handful that actually have that particular permission from the SEC. So then the list got even narrower. Than that. Right. Yeah. Yeah. We were fortunate enough, we came across DTM that 
at the time when we started talking to them, they actually still had not the approval from the SEC to be able to transact, you know, secondary market transactions for private securities on the blockchain. And as we were discussing with them and we liked the team and what they had, they just got approved. So, you know, the rest is history. <laughs> we send them a term sheet and purchase the company. Hmm. It's, I think it's really interesting hearing the tidbits you have. It actually ties into a question that I had for you about how you've been navigating these regulatory markets or these regulations. And like you said, when in an instance, instead of pushing back the regulators, you just went and got your fingerprints done, even though it's completely irrelevant to the process that a digital transfer agent can execute. So I thought that's really interesting. What other regulatory or, or jurisdictional art obstacles have you faced and how have you found innovative ways around them? So I think that the first couple of years, the problem was that there was no clarity from the regulators about what we could or could not do. The main assumption is that because these are the end of our securities, right? And securities laws already exist. So we should be able to do the same thing that, you know, traditional capital markets players, let's say broker dealers or banks, et cetera, do because we're dealing with the same instrument. We just represent it differently and using a different platform and a different ledger to represent them, but it shouldn't actually be different. And in, in 2019, there was a bit of a setback in the US because there was some joint guidance between the SEC and FINRA. FINRA is the, the broker dealer association in the US that helps the regulator. So um, there was a guidance that without going into much detail, it, it just basically put a lot of restrictions about how broker dealers and ATSs could operate in the US. So it was actually not good. And we were a bit frustrated if you want, because our thinking was, well, at the minimum, we should be able to do the same thing that traditional players do, if not more, but not less. There's no reason why we should be doing less. And I think it was a bit of a you know, misunderstanding or lack of knowledge about the, the technology and obviously all these concerns about you know, blockchains. And because as you, as you mentioned, all this fraud that happened on the ICO space that the regulators were you know, rightly so concerned that this could actually be another source of fraud. But over time, I think they've gotten more and more comfortable in most jurisdictions. And I think the last three months, we, without going into details because it's a very you know, specialized topic, but the last three months, there have been a number of announcements from the SEC in terms of what broker dealers and ATSs can do in this space that I feel that we've made more progress in the last three months than in the last three years. And that has been obviously you know, companies like us going and talking to the regulators and trying to educate them about what we do and why. This shouldn't be afraid. They should actually be happy because it provides more transparency and more automation and less cost. But not only us, I'm pretty sure all the companies like Coinbase, et cetera, that operate in the space, they've been you know, lobbying the regulators to get them to understand the space and to kind of adapt the regulation to what we need for this market to function efficiently. What I want to tap into here is I think you've got two very interesting things going on. One, a technology play in an industry that is ripe for disruption, as well as your background in leading tech companies and working with those leadership positions, but then also with what you started to do with Spice VC. Can you bring all of that experience into how it has been for raising capital for Securitize? And what experiences have you taken away from the last couple of years in, in raising capital for what you're doing? So it hasn't been easy to raise capital for our industry because, you know, it's difficult to find VCs that understand blockchain and how revolutionary it is and what is the potential of what this technology can do. And at the same time, find the same person that has an understanding of capital markets and they can see the opportunity of these Dyson private capital markets, which are, you know, massive trillion dollar markets that are extremely inefficient. So finding somebody that you can talk about both things at the same time and they understand it and they can get excited about the opportunity 
hasn't been easy to be honest with you. Now, the first time around when we raised money for the first time, we went to primarily blockchain-based investors because we felt that those guys, at least the first part, they understand it and they got it. And we were fortunate enough of meeting the team at Blockchain Capital, which have been with our lead investor in the CSA. And they have been phenomenal in many, many respects, not just providing capital, but also helping us in a ton of different ways, including also helping us raise money from other people, interest in the industry, contacts, et cetera. So I think that, you know, what the help in terms of raising money was, you know, a little bit, as you said, my career has been, has been very long because I've been around for a very long time in quite good positions. And that gives credibility because at the end of the day, VCs invest in funders and they invest in funders that they believe they're going to be able to execute, right? Because you're selling them a vision at the moment. You don't have anything. I mean, we have very, very little revenue when we raise money the first time. So it was more based on first convincing them that the opportunity was large enough and big enough. And second, that you had the credibility to execute on making it happen, right? Then the second time around when we raised money, I think the industry was a bit more mature. And then what we did was actually kind of like a 260 degree turn. And then we went to large financial institutions because we felt that that's going to give credibility to the industry. And those are potentially the guys that, you know, will help this space to become big. So we then went and raised money from, you know, the largest bank in Europe, Bank Santander, the largest bank in Japan, Mitsubishi, UFJ, you know, Nomura Securities, which is one of the largest securities firms in the world. Etc. So we now, and again, dealing with these very large corporations, my experience of having worked at a large corporation, I used to manage the corporate VC of Telefonica for a period of time, helped for me to kind of be on their side and understand what is that they're looking when they're investing in a company and give them the same comfort that, you know, we're a credible company, a credible team, we're very legit, we do things by the book and follow regulations and don't do anything illegal because obviously they're very concerned about the impact that will have to their reputation. Yeah. I was just, I want to ask a follow-on question to that of, for those looking to tap into those larger corporate VCs and specifically as a telecommunications VC, what are some of their concerns? You mentioned one being legality. Are there others? Are there, are there even career concerns? What are those, you know, really fine nuances of potential things that an investor or excuse me, an entrepreneur could benefit knowing from somebody who's been there? I think that, you know, first, when you approach a corporate VC, you have to do a little bit of, of research to understand what type of corporate VCs they are, because there's kind of like two different corporate VCs. There is corporate VCs that are very independent from the corporate, and it's just a basically a way for the corporation to deploy part of the treasury into something that, you know, has more potential than buying treasury notes. And those basically act as traditional VCs to some extent. They're financially driven. Their goal is to make money out of the investment, uh, et cetera. And those are kind of like the minority of the corporate VCs. The majority of the corporate VCs are VCs that deploy capital on behalf of the corporation because they're trying to invest in things that will eventually benefit the business of the corporation. So unless you first, you know, so I'm securitized, you can go to a corporate VC of, I don't know, Walmart, because what, what I do has nothing to do with Walmart, right? So, mm, yeah. But in any case, if you're in e commerce, maybe you should go to Walmart and you should not go to, let's say, JP Morgan. So, you have to identify what are the corporate VCs that you need to go after that you can somehow convince them that what you're doing is going to benefit the business long term and there is a business opportunity for them to use your products. And before that, you actually have to have identified, you know, some potential business opportunities for them. And you typically will have to socialize or have relationships already with the business people or the innovation teams or wherever you're interacting with that kind of validate that, yes, what you do 
fits with their you know long-term strategy and that technology is valuable to them to be able to improve the processes or to be able to create new business uh, etc because they, they don't invest just for a financial return they invest for a financial return but also for something that has a positive impact in the business of the parent company that has given them the money it is a different process than raising money from vcs vc pure financial vcs tend to be much more metrics driven and you know they just want to see numbers and they want to see progress and traction and, and things like that especially when you're a bit more mature company and not an early stage and then corporate vcs tend to be more center around you know the impact that of what you're doing if it's successful how is this going to benefit the corporate and that you have to keep that in mind when you present to them and when you talk to them because you know you have to convince them about that particular point excellent well you know i'm looking at time here and i want to wrap up with us there's a lot here i think we've breezed through your questions because one well you speak quick and you have a lot of information so i'm glad that i think we hit on a lot of things but what would the final thoughts be that you have for our audience when it comes to capital formation, raising capital, and then also keeping their eyes on blockchain opportunities and also the work you're doing with Securitize? So I think that what's going to be revolutionary for startups is that it's a combination of a number of trends that are happening in the industry. First, crowdfunding is getting better and better and bigger and bigger, right? And to some extent, you know, security tokens are some sort of form of crowdsourcing on steroids, if you want, because they allow you to basically crowdsource across geographies and jurisdictions, etc. So it's a very powerful tool to raise money. But at the same time, you shouldn't think that because your security is going to be represented on the blockchain, you will be able to raise more money than if it's not, because that typically is not the case. Right. <laughs> other people, because you'll be able to reach them through the internet and you know all the type of audiences. But you still have to have a solid project and you have to have a good pitch. And you know, depending on the stage of your company, a good track record and, and a good deck presenting the opportunity, et cetera. So I will, that would be like the first number, the first thing that I will recommend to people. And the second thing is that for startups, you know, the path to liquidity has been a very, very long one, long and difficult one. So if you think about when companies, you know, during dot-com times, when companies went public, a company like Amazon went public when it was like, I don't know, two or three or $4 billion. I don't remember now, but PayPal, I was the other day talking to an ex-PayPal friend and PayPal went public when they were $4 billion market cap. That meant they went public after two or four years of funding the company. These days is very, very different. Companies go public very late. Mm. It's a very, very long time. If you look at companies like Airbnb or Palantir, like the recent IPOs, those companies have been around for 10, 15 years and they go public when they're, you know, $100 billion, $200 billion or above, which means for the most part, they stay liquid for a very, very, very long time. What they have to think is that, you know, representing their securities on the blockchain allows them for thinking about a different path to get liquidity earlier when they're still private. In other words, we have to go public and all the hassles of going public and all the filings and all the costs, et cetera, and all the costs, what you need to do, there is a way for companies to provide liquidity through these new technologies and these new marketplaces like the one we're going to be launching after the acquisition that will allow for liquidity, which they wouldn't do if the security is not on the blockchain, because it is, as we discussed at the beginning, it's a much more convoluted and, and difficult process. So, so I think for entrepreneurs, this is one of the things they need to be thinking about security tokens. About blockchain in general, I think that first, they should think whether they really need a blockchain or not for the business, <laughs> because I think there was a period of time the last few years where everybody wanted to be on the blockchain space, even if they actually don't need a blockchain, right? So they right. Understand what the problem they're trying to solve, 
And if this problem requires that you know multiple entities collaborate across you know using the same data on the same ledger, then in that particular scenario, this is where blockchain lends itself very, very well as the underlying platform to do that. And if not, then they should just you know build an, a traditional application. If this uh, sort of like collaboration, decentralization, it is something relevant to their business, then they should be thinking about using blockchain. And if not, they should just you know do a normal business and a normal technology company, and that's it. Don't you know let the hype you know push you in towards blockchain unless you actually need it, <laughs> because otherwise, yes. eventually people are going to realize about that. So. Yeah, it's funny in our Canadian junior markets, there is, you know, you talk about hype. There was one point where companies were merely changing their name, their public listed name to include blockchain or cryptocurrency in their name. And all of a sudden their stock was going up. It was just, it was insanity. So I I just reflect on that craziness, but. um, I think we're going to see this again this year because crypto is, you know, Bitcoin's at $40,000 now today. And I think that that's going to, unfortunately bring another hype around the technology mm. uh, for, for people as you said like i remember this this iced tea company that became the instead of the long iced tea the long blockchain company and then suddenly pivoted the business model to blockchain when they had absolutely nothing to do with blockchain so i hope that this doesn't happen as crazy as it happened last time because people have learned the lessons but i suspect a little bit of that we will see it but people shouldn't do that it's not a good long-term idea it might short-term push your stock or help you raise money, but it's not going to help you build a sustainable long-term business unless you really need the technology for the problem you're trying to solve. Yes, I hear you. Well, Carlos, I really appreciate your time. This has been informative. So all the best to you. And yeah, thanks again. Well, thanks, Corey, for the invitation. It's been my pleasure to be here and I look forward to hear the podcast. Excellent. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Insider's Guide to Finance. If you enjoyed what you heard, Please share this with your friends and colleagues so they can benefit as well. You can also subscribe and leave a review on iTunes or the Play Store. Your support there is really appreciated. For future episodes, if there's a question, topic, or specific person you'd like me to interview, feel free to reach out. You can connect with me on LinkedIn or through my website at creativereturn.ca.